end of 2013, like I said, all of our Christmas stuff is gone. I keep forgetting to tell all the other groups, so you guys are fortunate to be the last one. I don't know what to do with these. Um, they were brought to us, and um, I, all I was told was to keep the dirt wet. So um, I've done my job up to Christmas, so if you would like to take any one of these home or all of them home, please do, because otherwise there's a dumpster out back that will be making smelling a lot better um, at the end of this service. So please make sure you take those with you. I don't, even, I don't have any idea what to do with them, so please, please take those with you. As I said, we are at the end of 2013. I am excited about what 2014 has to hold. Um, it's crazy to think about we're another year down. I don't know if, that, if this time of year, that's what always happens to me. My mind starts going to the point where we're another year is gone. Another year is done, and now we have to wait another 360-something days till Christmas again. You know, and that, those kind of thoughts start overwhelming me and start getting through my mind. And I started thinking, what has changed? And I'm not sure if you've ever done it, but you can go on to Google or any one of those things and type in year and review. And it's going to come up with whatever website you go to, it's going to give you their most important things that have happened. And you're going to see the, the, the joyous occasions and you're going to see the things that have, have caused devastation. And you're going to see all these things that have made up 2013. My question for you this morning is this. If you were to type in year in your view in your life, what would it show? What have you accomplished over the last year? What changes have been made uh, other than physically since, since 2012? Since the end of 2012, what has changed during the, the time span of 2013? What, what things have happened in your life that, that are earth-shattering to you, are, are a joyous occasions to you? What has changed around us? And my question is, is, is what have you done to make that change? And see, I, I went back and forth on the, on the message to bring, because honestly, on Friday night, this was not the message that I had. The message that is on, uh, on my desk right in front of me, is totally different than the one I planned on. The one I planned on was kind of a happy New Year message. And I know that that sounds better than, than the alternative, doesn't it? Um, but unfortunately, the alternative is what, what I've kind of been challenged to. Um, the, the more I, I prepared, the more I had things ready for this happy New Year, here's the changes kind of thing, God kind of redirected me. And so I am giving you a heads up that you may not like what God has to say this morning, because I didn't like what God had to say to me to have it be passed on to you. So uh, there's, there's a possibility, there's some, some, some toes that are going to get stepped on as we talk about this change. Uh, anybody ever heard of the book called Who Moved My Cheese? Okay, probably those of you who have been in the business market have heard the book, Who Moved My Cheese? The very first book I was given when I got into ministry was Who Moved My Cheese? If you've never read it before, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of it, and you don't have to. It basically says this, change happens, adapt to it. That's it. That's, that's the, the way that the whole thing was. It was the, in companies, change happens. We know that change happens. Do you realize that a thousand years ago, unless your country was being invaded or your country was invading another one, you were going to do the same thing, speak the same way, dress the same way as your parents did in the generation before them and the generation before them and the generation before them. That was just the way that it was. That's, that's what we kind of wrapped ourselves around. In the last hundred years, more change has happened than it did in the previous thousand. And in the last 20 years, more changes happened than in the last 100. Anybody in here have a smartphone? Yeah. Imagine that. 
Okay, the smartphone that you have in your pocket is more powerful than the Voyager spacecraft that went, craft that went up in, the, in 1981 that is still rotating around the universe. has a more powerful computer in, in your pocket than that, that machine that is supposed to be doing all that information now. It's almost crazy to think about that those kind of changes have taken place. And you think about all the changes that are going on around us technologically, for sure, socially, politically, all these things are changing economically. Changes are taking place. And I'd be willing to bet that you have changed in the last year. And some big changes have taken place. As a matter of fact, if you were with us on our last Sunday of 2012, we were meeting at a cafeteria. We have changed. Our church has changed. And it's, it's a hard thing to adjust to. I was just telling Jerome this. Last night, we had 70-something people in here. And then the 9 o'clock service, we only had 30. And the week before that, it was flip-flopped. And I'm like, I can't get used to this. It's just just pick a service. No, it's kidding. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of one of those things that, that we, change is happening, and, and we have to adapt to it. And, you know, th- there's one thing that always stays constant throughout the change, though. One thing that always should stay constant throughout the change, and that is, whether it's been a thousand years or the last hundred years or the last 20, the gospel does not change. The gospel does not change. And the point is, is that, it's, it's not about all the things we can make out of it. It is about Jesus. And Jesus' message hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't changed himself. And that the fact that we look at it is Jesus, and that points to God's love, and that points to our relationship with him. And it points to the, the mercy and salvation that, that comes from that. And we look at each one of those things, and it's not about the change but too often we try and change it, don't we? Too often we try and make the gospel something more than, than it needs to be. And, and I really, truly believe the gospel can stand on its own. We don't need to change the gospel. The gospel needs to change us. We don't need to be informed by the gospel. We need to be transformed by it. We need to have change take place in our lives. And unfortunately, I don't think a lot of us like that. Because we don't really, really like change. You know, I read a, a statistic this week that was supposed to go with uh, the other message that I was going to bring, um, that 16% of church congregations will never change. 16%. Which I get to think, we run about 150, so that would be, uh, I'm not real good at math, but that's about what? About 20, 25-ish? Yeah, somewhere in that area. So 25 people that I've talked to this weekend will never change, no matter what I say. That's kind of disheartening, just a little bit. I mean, you have to think about that. And you get these big churches, and they're like, now you know why pastors quit? Because you're like, hey, I, I just cannot change that person. I have been, I just want to break them. You know, that, oh, it's my will against theirs, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, change, you know. I don't know. But it's, a, it's an amazing thing to kind of look at. And we, we try and change it. Instead of, instead of letting the gospel change us, we try and change it to fit what we want. And, you know, this time of year, change is what we want. Change is what we want. How many people do New Year's resolutions? And when we do New Year's resolutions, what do we want? We want to change ourselves. We want to change ourselves for the better. Whether it be our own personal self or our family or the people that we hang out with, we want to change ourselves in some way, shape, or form. And don't get me wrong, I think New Year's resolutions are great. Even though 92% of them will fail by Valentine's Day, I think it's a good thing to get your mind in the area of things that you need to work on. And if you want to do it, do it. If you, if you want to change yourself in a healthier way. Do it. If you want to get yourself out of debt, do it. 
If, if you want to serve more and be a bigger part of, of the church or your community or whatever it is, I will be the first person that greets you at the door and helps you get into where you need to be. Do it. Don't hold back. But I do want to ask you a question. And maybe actually a couple of them. Because after, after some real heavy thoughts that I've had for the last couple of months, some real big ponderings that I've had going on for the last couple of months. I knew this is the message I was supposed to bring this weekend. I, I've known it literally for months. But at the same time, I wanted to give the happy, happy message. I wanted everybody to walk out and go, oh, that was so good. I feel so good about myself. That, that's what I wanted people to walk out of here with. But God kept saying, no, no, the, the things that I'm challenging you with, pass them on, and maybe somebody else is going to do with it. It doesn't matter if you step on their toes. Let me step on their toes. What he kept saying to me, and I was like, I don't really want to do it, God. I want to do the soft one. I want to do the, the nice one that everybody likes me afterwards. And, and as I looked at it, and I, the questions about change that kept going on, that kept happening, was this. Those New Year's resolutions that we make, even if you're in the 8% that actually make it past Valentine's Day, will they make a difference 10 years from now? Will they make a difference 100 years from now? And even more so, will they make a difference for eternity? Those are the things that I think we need to be challenged with. And that's something that's been going on and on and on because those questions have come from, from my mind and from my heart and I believe God inspiring me to the fact of this. I want my life to count. I want my life to count. It's plain and it's simple. I don't want to waste my life. I'm less than 30 days away from being 38 years old. Now for some of you, that's just a young pup. Others of you, I have one foot in the grave. I understand that. I understand that. But I look at that and I say, holy cow, 38 years. I want you to see this just for two seconds. And if you're older than me, I apologize for this hurting you, okay? But the average lifespan of a man is 76. Guess what half of 76 is? 38. I'm, I'm at the peak. It's all downhill from here. That's it. I, I've come to that realization that life is nearly over, okay? And, and, and as I start to think about that, and I go, oh, man, I've been given. Do you realize there's an online calculator that can tell you how many days, how many seconds, how many hours that you have been alive? As of this point in time, I've been alive for 13,854 days. 13,854 days. My question that I keep wrapping my mind around is this. What have they amounted to? All those days I've been given, what have I done with them? What has really done anything? Because I want my life to count. I want my life to count for my family. I want my life to count for my wife. I want my life to count for this church. I want it to count for you. I don't ever want to just say, we're just doing this to do it. I'm just breathing a breath because that's what I have. I want to take every breath and make it matter. I want it to count for something. I want this church to count in this community. I don't want to just say, hey, guess what, guys? We had a great Saturday and a great Sunday, and I'm looking forward to connection groups. All right, boom, and that's it. And that's our weekly in and out routine. I want to make a difference. I want to see God be glorified through it all. I don't want to waste my life. And you know what? Every New Year's that comes along, Every day that comes along, it reminds me that's one less year and one less day that I have left. And I, I know that, I know, 
Happy New Year's, guys. Thanks. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's exactly what you're thinking. Wow. And, and, that, and that's it. But here's the truth I want to walk away with. Because this morning, um, I'm going to rearrange your chaplain and, and Phil. Um, I'm not sure if you guys had a chance to meet Phil Sylvia or not yet. But Phil, um, he's, he's, uh, he's like my training chaplain. And he decided not to call me this morning uh, because there was an accident that took place at Southern and Unser. Um, at four o'clock and he said I didn't know how long we'd be there and I didn't want to mess up your Sunday morning So I just went and didn't call you to go along, but um, it was a 21 year old uh, uh, Lady who just turned 21 in uh, in November and her cousin and they ran a red light after drinking for for most of the night uh, Ran a red light at, uh, at Southern and Unser and neither one of them were in their seatbelts They were t-boned one was thrown from the car. The other one was thrown into a light pole uh, Neither one of them survived and I think about that in not a morbid way, but I think about this. When they got in the car on Saturday night and said, hey, we're going to go have a great time, the last thing they thought was, but this will be the last time. They didn't think that. We don't think that. We think, I got all these days left. I get to live till 78. No, no, no. That's just the average. Somebody's got to bring that average down. And, and that sounds in a sick, morbid kind of comical way, but somebody does have to bring that out. We don't get that. The day we have right now, the breath we have right now, it is a gift from God at any point in time it could be taken from us. And I think about that and I say, God, what have I done? What have I done? Because I really believe, I really truly believe that God wants to raise up men and women in his church whose lives count for his glory on the landscape of human history. He doesn't want us just existing. And I say that for for this week and we're going to continue this message on into next week and i believe truly that we're going to continue this message on all the way through 2014 and even on from there because right now we are going through a series called the gospels what's the point the point is is jesus we know that the entire old testament points to it. the entire new testament points back to it and and that is it it is jesus and that is our point. And as we go through it chronologically, there are going to be messages that come up that I do not want to share. Because Jesus says some pretty crazy things. If you've ever read the Gospels, there's some pretty crazy things in there. I mean, it talks about salvation, and it talks about being free from hell and getting to go to heaven. And those are great, great things. But it also talks about some other things that maybe we don't want to talk about. And maybe we don't really want to touch on. Like Luke 9.23, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Give up your own life for mine and be a follower. That's a, that's a painful, I don't really want to dig into that. I like this idea of just having heaven. That sounds better, doesn't it? And, and we have this tendency to say, you know, as long as, as long as we focus on this one, we can avoid the painful realities of some of the other things the gospel has to say. And I think Paul even talks about that, and he's echoing Jesus that every day there's some painful realities that that we have been called to as Christians, not to just merely exist, but to live a life that counts. And we can find that actually in the book of Philippians. We can find it in the book of Galatians. We can find it in the book of Ephesians. We can look through all of those. We can find it in Colossians on how we're supposed to live a life and not add to the gospel and say, well, it's this plus I can do whatever I want or I can minus whatever I don't want. And, and so what I want to do this morning and, and carry into next week is take a look at some, some things here in Philippians chapter 3 today. And as we look at Philippians chapter 3, uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. We look at it and we'll see some very heavy realities. And we're going to uncover some of them. We're not even going to uncover all of them. But we're going to look through four characteristics about peoples who have lived lives, both in the Bible as well as outside the Bible, that have made their lives count for God and what those characteristics are 
Th- those four characteristics are that they have. And today we're honestly only going to look at one of them. But let's, let's pray and then uh, open up to ch- chapter 3 of Philippians. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's up here on the screen. If you don't have the ability to see the screen, it's in your bulletin as well on the back side. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your words this morning. Thank you for the challenge that you have thrown out to me uh, throughout this week, throughout the last few months. And God, I, I just pray that it's not my words, but yours that people here this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Here's what it says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Funny thing about that verse right there, uh, that he starts off with finally. Do you realize that chapter 3 is not the final chapter of Philippians? It's kind of like when I say, and here's my final point, and everybody 20 minutes later is like, is it done yet? Um, So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence of flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as for the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of, the no- of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I've made my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining for what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. See, these are some powerful truths. These are some powerful truths that are found in this passage. And, and there are things that I really don't want to uncover in here. But I think as we look at a passage, we can't take what we like and, and discard what we don't. It says this. It's basically saying this is what we have to do if we don't want to waste our lives. Here's some characteristics we're going to lay out there. And honestly, today I'm only going to get the characteristic number one. I wanted this to be an all uh, in one message kind of thing. That way people didn't miss it. But the problem is I already am going over by about 10 minutes. So if I would have gotten three more characteristics in, we might as well just go ahead and watch the Packers game on this TV. But um, the, the thing is, is that here's number one. Our treasure is Christ. Our treasure is Christ, and people in this characteristic, they treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. They treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. See, it's so easy for us, and I say us probably more pointing at myself. Okay, This message is right at me. I'm going to let you know this right now. I'm at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Uh, I am Matt Sellers, and I fail at this message, okay? That, that is where we're at right now on, the, on this whole thing. I, I feel like that's where I'm at. So please understand, when I say us, I'm probably saying more me than you, but maybe you're included in it as well. It's easy for us to walk in Christianity as part of our lives versus as whole. 
It's easy for me to say, here is my God, here is my Holy Spirit, here is my Jesus, over here, here's the rest of my life, and they do not have to intersect. That's easy. It's not right, but it's easy. And that's the way I I, I like to do it. Um, Last year, if you were with us for January and February, you'll know, or maybe you won't, our series was to kick off 2013 going all in. We talked about loving the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That was our all-in message, and this is how we do it. Guess what? It's a year later. Guess who failed at it? I did. I failed at it. Yet, that was my desire. I wanted to do it. It sounded good. It looked good. It looked good on our pens and on our t-shirts and on our booklets as we went through the book of Acts to go all in and that kind of thing. But I failed. How does that happen? Because it becomes easy. It becomes easy to, to say, you know what? I think that's what God's saying, to love our the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. But I can add to that that all doesn't really mean all. I mean, there's another definition for all, isn't there? There's a way to tweak all and make it just part, right? There's a, there's a way to do that. We can justify anything we want. And like I said earlier, it's easy for us to, to say, you know, I, I like this heaven part. I like the heaven part of what Jesus has to offer because hell, the alternative, is a whole lot worse. So I, I like this. That's good. But I don't really like all the other things it has to say. And I'm going to take what I do like, put it over here, and I'm going to take what I don't, and I'm going to throw it away because I don't need it. But that's not the way the gospel works. We can't take what we like and throw away what we don't. That's not how it's supposed to happen. And, and I look and I see that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. And that's exactly who he's talking to here at the beginning. He's talking to these guys called Judaizers, and what Judaizers would do is they would take the message of the gospel, which we have said, the gospel, what's the point? That's what we've been talking about since September. And our thing was, is the point is Jesus. That is the point of the gospel. Their answer would be Jesus plus. Plus whatever they wanted to add to it. And that's why Paul writes here at the beginning of of this chapter that we're reading at in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's not being nice here, just to let you know. In case you were wondering, he, if you were thinking that he's just, you know, chitter-chattering, it's not like when you guys walked in, I'm like, hey, come on over here and give me a big hug, you mutilator of the flesh. That's not the, the discussion that we're going to have. I'm not going to call you a dog. I'm not going to call you an evildoer. That's not, he's not happy right here. He's not happy because they're doing the Jesus Plus. And he says, if you guys want to play the Jesus Plus game, I'm going to beat you at it. That's what he says next in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I have reason for what I can do. Because if anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. I can beat you at this game. I am better than you at being good. That's who I am. That's what I can do. And here's, here's why. He lists it in the next verse. He lists what seven different things here. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a people of Israel. Not only am I a people of Israel, I'm a part of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as for the law, guess what? I'm a Pharisee. And as for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness under the law, I am blameless. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a really, really good list. Better than most anybody else. And he says it himself. I am more. I have more. I have done more than you have done. 
So when it comes right down to it, you think he's all set. But no, look what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss. Loss for the sake of Christ. All those things I just gave you on that giant list, that amazing list that I have that's better than you, it's all loss without Christ is what he just said. It's all loss without Christ. And he's saying these things, the things that when we're supposed to treasure Christ, you're treasuring these things. These treasured things are what we treasure in a wasted life. Treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer is, is the first characteristic. These people that he's talking to aren't, aren't treasuring that. And how do we know that we're not falling into that? How do we know? Because, you know what, being a Hebrew of Hebrews or, or being circumcised in the eighth day or any of those things, that doesn't really fit our thing. So, so how do we make it a modern-day version? How do we make it something that we can fit into? Well, I kind of went through and said, okay, well, eighth day of circumcision. He was born into that. People of Israel, he was born into that. Being a part of the tribe of Benjamin, born into that. Hebrew of Hebrews, born into that. Nothing that, that he really accomplished on his own. It all came from ha- family heritage. And, you know, we have a tendency to say that same thing, that if we were to break down these into a modern-day version, I think that's the first thing we would say. Well, look at my family. Look how good I am to my family. Look how I respect my family. Look at the pride I have for my family. Look at these things that I've got. I even take my family to church. Ooh. You know, th- those, are the, those are the things that we will say as they look at me. Look at the things I do. Modern day is family heritage. The second thing we see is this. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe with influence and status. You see, the tribe of Benjamin was surrounding Jerusalem. It was in a place of influence and status. The tribe of Benjamin had the first king of Israel come from it, a guy by the name of Saul. The guy that's writing this, his former name was Saul. I wonder if there's any sort of correlation there between the, the family naming him and knowing that the first king that came from this tribe is also there influence and status how much does our social status matter how much does it matter with our reputation our community standing our standing in the neighborhood or our workplace or in our schools how how does that factor into things see that first thing with the family heritage that's a good thing to have a good family heritage to to take your family to church to love your family to respect your family good things this social status thing unless it's tainted it's a good thing it's a good thing. We see that as well. The biblical knowledge is the next thing we see. Because he goes, hey, I'm a Pharisee. When it comes right down to it, I'm a Pharisee. I know. A lot of times we have this negative view of Pharisees. I think it's because they killed Jesus. But the, the thing is, is that we have this negative view. But in reality, they were lovers of the Old Testament. They lived it to the T. They memorized every last bit of it. Not many of us in here can say that. You know, those are good things. To be a lover of the word, how well we know the Bible, how well we can rattle off a verse, however, those kind of things. But the funny thing is, and we're going to get to it here in a second, they may be a good thing, but sometimes just knowing the Bible isn't the same as applying the Bible. Just knowing what it has to say isn't the same as actually applying what it has to say. When somebody can get up and they can quote all their verses because they memorize them in a wanna, but you say, well, what does that actually mean? And they go, uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's like me understanding that soap cleans my body. It me understanding that it says Irish spring on it, and I can memorize it, and I can smell it, and all those things. But until I actually apply it, it's not going to do me any good. 
That is the, the way we have to see that with biblical knowledge. And then he goes on there and says, how about me being zealous for the church? I have this passion for the church, so much so that I actually persecuted the church because they were going away from Judaism. I was killing people because they were walking away. You want passion for the church? How about somebody who kills people because they leave it? Nobody would leave our church, I don't think, would they? You know, that would be a whole new ballgame. Might be a cult, but that might be a whole other thing. You know, we look at that, and we see that, and we think, okay, that's religious activity. What if I do lots of good things in the church? What if I do serve? What if I can make sure my family's going there? What if I do over and over and over? What if I make sure my family prays at bedtime and prays before meals? All good things. Everything we've talked about so far has been a good thing. And the final thing he says is, I follow the rules. I'm blameless when it comes to following the rules. He's moral. He's got a moral lifestyle. All five of these characteristics that are up here, all five of them, that's what we want. Those are good things. As a matter of fact, if I knew families that were striving after this, those would be the families I would encourage my, my family to become friends with, to make sure my kids were friends with their kids, because that's what we want. We want those things. They are not bad things. And Paul wasn't saying bad things keep us from Jesus. What is he saying? Sometimes it's the good things. Sometimes it's us striving for the plus, the and, the Jesus and, the Jesus plus that get in the way of us actually having a relationship with Jesus. I mean, think about how many people have one of those five things on their New Year's resolution. Think about the people that they want to read the Bible more. They want to have a better family. They want to have a, a better knowledge. They want to be more passionate about the church. They want those things, yet they're missing the point. You see, because we can be loving to our family. We can be respectful. We can take our family to church. We can have a good re reputation. We can have all those things. We can have a full resume. And when we stand before God and we say, God, here's all the things that I did. And he looks at it and he looks back up at us and he looks at it. He looks back up at us and he stamps it. He has this wasted stamp that he puts right on our paper because he said, you wasted your life. That wasn't what I told you to do. I told you to search after my son, Jesus, to follow him and let all those other things come because of that, not in spite of that or not on top of that. It was love my son and then I don't want to live a wasted life. And I believe those things, those five things we mentioned, they're, they're, they're treasures of the wasted life. They're the things that we go after and and. If that's all wasted, what is it? What's the one thing that matters? Because the only thing, the only treasure in life that counts is Jesus Christ. He is the decisive difference. See, Paul tells us that in verses 7, 8, and 9. Because he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for who? The sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. For his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss and all of these things and count them as what? Rubbish. We're going to talk about what that word means here in just a second. In order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. See, over and over and over again, Paul says, Christ is better than this. All the good things lumped together. All the good things we have lumped together, Christ is better than. Because everything else is a big zero in comparison to Christ. And if we don't have Christ, it stays a zero. Even with Christ, those things are really nothing in comparison to him. They're all good things. They're all things we want to do, but they are not 
it. And the funny thing is, is he says, hey, our life, our life is about Christ. It's to glorify Christ. It's not about us. It's not what it's for. Every good thing we do is rubbish. Do you understand what the word rubbish actually meant in the original Greek? When, when Paul was writing this, the third century translators could not bring it to themselves to translate the word correctly because they didn't want that dirty word in the Bible. It's actually a word that is used for dung or excrement or poop or waste. Um, uh, it's, it's a bigger word than that. And if I use it now, and since we're recording it, I'd have to put explicit on our iTunes tag. Those, those are the things that, that what Paul was saying, all of our good things, that's as good as they are. He uses the word rubbish, or it's been translated rubbish for that very reason. But see, that is radically different than the Christianity that, that we are, I believe, living in right here and right now. Because I believe there are thousands and thousands of people sitting in thousands and thousands of churches across the United States right here, right now, that are hearing a message and they're feeling good because they took their family to church and they, they've, they can check it off that they made it to the last Sunday of, of the year and, and now everything's going to be good. And they, they believe that as long as they do this and they sit in their seat and they, they mingle with those people, that everything is going to be good. They're just going through motions, though. And those motions are being wasted. And God is saying that is a wasted life. It's not about going through the motions. And I really believe not only are there people sitting and listening, but I believe there are people standing and talking that are also going through the motions. They say, hey, you know what? I, I've got some great moral teaching I'd like to, li- to, to give to you and tell you how to be better. And I, I got some things that, I mean, really what it came down to, that was the message I kind of had about change, about being better for 2014, but that, that's not it. That's not what the message that, that God had bring us. You know, I'm not saying, hey, if you name it and claim it and this and this, these blessings are going to come pouring down upon you. You know, there are pe- preachers that are getting out and saying that, and they don't even mention the word Jesus. They don't even use their Bibles. They don't even use a scripture text. They're using things outside of it. And that's a problem. And I believe that when Matthew 25, 44 um, becomes not just a, a story, but a reality, it's exactly what's going to happen. Because Matthew chapter 25 talks about uh, there's a time when, when Jesus is going to return and there's going to be uh, Christians, quote-unquote Christians, that are divided up into two sides. And there's going to be the goats on one side and there's going to be the sheep on one side. He's going to talk to the sheep. He said, hey, you know what? I saw what you did. And you did it for me, and you did it because of me. And he's going to look at the goats and say, I saw what you did, but you didn't do it for me. And you didn't do it because of me. And those, those people are going to answer on the, the goat side. They're going to say, but Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we take our kids to church? Didn't we live more alive? Didn't we teach Bible studies? And, and, and. Doesn't our reputation to our neighbors really make a difference? Doesn't our, our standing in the community compared to those other people that we look so much better than? Doesn't that matter? And you know how Jesus answers them? Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. That is a sad reality that I don't, I don't particularly like. I don't, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that there's a bunch of people that are going to have a big wasted stamp thrown on their resume when they get to heaven of a wasted life. Because I really believe that we need to get right down to it here in this way. No matter how you serve, no matter what you do, if you don't do it with Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and we need to really get right down to it. Do you know Christ? That is the question of the day. That is the question of our lives. Do we know 
Christ. Not know about him. Not, did you say a prayer when you were in, in elementary school that, that made him come into your heart so you could have eternal life because you were afraid of hell? But, but do you know him? Because when I ask if you know him, if you have a relationship with anybody at all, your job is to get to know them better. Is it not? Because otherwise you're just merely existing. Are you not? When my wife and I, when we met, I didn't know her as well as I do now. Why is that? Because our relationship has continued to grow. When my kids came into my life, I have learned more and more about them, and they surprise me every day, because every day there's something new that I'm like, are you serious? But the, the, the thing is, is, I'm getting to know them in a relationship with Christ. When I say, do you know Christ? Are you continuing to grow in him? Are you continuing to know him? Are you just going through the motion? And if you do know him, does everything else in this world pale in comparison to him? That's a hard question. That's a hard question. It was a hard question for me to write down because I knew the answer to me. I knew it. I knew that's not the truth, that everything doesn't pale in comparison to him. See, that is biblical Christianity, though. It may not be American Christianity, but it is biblical Christianity. And we look at it and we say, man, do I really know Christ? And I really truly believe that somewhere along the lines we've been numbed up. That we have forgotten, that we've been lulled to sleep to think that it's okay just to slide over this way. But God's like, no, 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 this is it. But the adversary's plan isn't for us to be completely worthless. It's just for us to be completely useless. He, he wants us to think that we're okay doing what we're doing instead of following what Christ said. And he says, you know what? Here's the deal. We've been lulled to sleep and forgetting that we have found something worth losing everything for. We have found something in Jesus Christ worth losing everything for. And Paul tells us that, and he's saying it right here in this verse. But I guess what Jesus tells us as well. When he says in Luke 9, 23, to take up your cross and follow me and be willing to give of your life. When he says take up your cross, everybody knew what a cross was back then. They knew it meant giving up your life. They knew that. And you know, it's not the only time he says it. He says it in Matthew chapter 13 as well. And there's plenty of other ones. But look at this. Three short verses, two parables. Look what he says. The kingdom of heaven, which I assume is everybody's end desire in here. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he had and buys that field. I want to pause there just for a second. That's his parable right there. Boom. A man found the kingdom of heaven, that treasure hidden in a field. And he goes, and he does what? He sells what? He sells everything he has because that's how much it's worth to him. And how does he do it? Does he do it stubbornly? Does he do it angrily? Does he do it with bitterness? No, he does it with joy. He gives up all because he wants that treasure. That treasure is worth more than anything else that he owns. And that treasure here is the kingdom of heaven. The verse 45 also says, again, the kingdom of heaven. is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who finds one pearl of great value. And he went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, we have found something worth losing everything for. Jesus Christ is worth losing everything for. The best thing in this life are worth giving up for. And I think the reason why we struggle to hold on to our stuff and our life is because we don't realize that it's not ours. We think that it's ours. We think our stuff and our life is actually ours, but guess what? It's not. Our life, our life is in God's hands. 
Every breath we take hang by the thread of his grace. If he decided to take it away, he can. He owns every soul. He has made us, and we belong to him virtual, virtual uh, you know, because he created us. That's it. We are his, and he can give life, and he can take it away. It's kind of like that old Bill Cosby joke. I gave you life, and son, I can take it away. That, that, that's it. That, that's, that's God. And, and we hang everything on that. He created human life, and he can decide what human life is for. And that human life is to glorify himself, not for us to glorify ourselves. And that goes back to the point. The treasure that we have, if it is Christ above everything else the world has to offer, that's when we're in the right. That's when we're where we know we need to be. Those people, they treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. You see, I have a hard time with that. I really, really do. Back in July, I gave up DirecTV. And the reason why we gave it up is because we're going through the adoption process, and we said, hey, $80 a month on TV, or we could just watch TV for free. Um, and we don't really watch that much TV anyway. Um, then we'll just, we'll just put that money towards the adoption, and everything will be good. And um, that was in July. I'm not sure if you realize that, but football season wasn't going yet. And um, I made a mistake. That's, that's all I kept telling myself every, every Monday night. Uh, when, and every Thursday night, because there's games on Thursday on cable and, and satellite, and I just, oh, man, it's hard. And right now, bowl season started, huh, I haven't got to watch any college bowls yet. I mean, I got a little tear in my eye, and tomorrow night, Arizona State plays against Texas Tech, and I want to see that, and it's on ESPN, and doggone it, ABC, I hate you. You know, that, that show a game, it's all right. And, and that's the, the, the thinking that we have, and that's just a small example. You know, I think about, oh, man, it'd be so great to be able to just watch that and not give that up. But what if God called me to give it up for something bigger, something bigger than myself? And that's just TV. What if he told me to actually give away my TV? And I'd be like, no, you know, I got a hug on that thing. No way I'm giving that up. That, that, that's a terrible idea, God. Why would you make me do that? And that's just TV. But think about each thing that if God said, I want you to give your all and follow me, how reluctant we would be. And I know it would be that way for me. I don't know what it would be like for you, but I know that it would be that way for me. And then I look at this extreme example of a guy in the Bible that had to give all without choosing to give all. It, it was just, he had to give it because God took it. There's a guy by the name of Job. Maybe you've read about Job before in the Bible and you, you've seen his story. And you've heard about what he's had to go through. Now, granted, it all worked out for him in the end, but he had no idea that's the way it was going to all end up. At the end of the book, we get to see the end of the book. He didn't get to see the end of the book until it was actually happening. But look what happens. See, he lost all of his wealth. Every animal that he had that made up who he was, all the land that he had, everything he had, he lost. He, he not only lost all of his wealth, he, he broke out in boils all over his body. He lost his health. He, he was in pain all of the time. And he lost that. And then, oh, by the way, he lost almost all of his family. He lost 10 of his kids. All 10 of his kids. The only person that was left was his wife, and she nagged him to go ahead and die. He probably was sitting there going, why didn't you just take her, God, and leave the 10 kids? You know, th that, but that wasn't, the, that wasn't the benefit that he got to have. And you know, right after he lost his 10 kids, look what he does. Look what he does. Look how he responds in verse 20 of Job chapter 1. It says, then Job arose. He tore his robe and he shaved his head. Now, right there, that'd be great. That's probably what I would do too. I'm just oh, so angry and my head's already done, so I'm good. But, but then it says, he did what? He fell on the ground and wept and mourned. No. 
He fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped God in this time. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away what? What's that say? Say it out loud. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wait a second. Anybody know who Matt Redman is? That song that we sing, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away, though my heart will choose to say, Blessed be the name. We sing that song pretty often. I like that song. I like that song a lot. As a matter of fact, I kind of raise my hands up and we sing it come down here so I don't offend anybody, you know. But, you know, it, once we start getting a little higher, then everybody's like, oh, what's he doing? But the, the, I, I like that song. But let me ask you a question. If, if I went home today and my family who came to church last night was glad to sleep in on a Sunday morning, if I went home and my house had burned to the ground and my whole, everything I had was gone and they're standing out front and they're all looking at me, and I got home from church and I said, well, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. Hey, the, the, that <laughs> That would not be my response. I'm just going to be honest with you. But yet, that, that's the response right here. That is the response here because it's not my stuff. It was God's stuff to begin with. If he wants to take it away, then he takes it away. That's just the way it is. And Job 12.10, he says that. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He says that. He says, you know what? This is the deal. God's got it all. I have no control over this. And you want a little less extreme example? Because Job is an extreme example. And we're like, well, that's Job. That can't be me. I can't do that. Look at the little less extreme example of Moses. See, when Moses, we, we know, I assume, the story of Moses and where Moses came from and, and all the things he had to go through. But I think we miss what Hebrews 11 actually records about Moses years and years later. Look what it says in verse 23. By faith, which is an important statement, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid in the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called to the sons of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy what? The fleeting pleasures of sin. All the things that the world has to offer. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now pause here just for a second. This is Hebrews recording Moses. Moses, Old Testament. Jesus, New Testament. How could he consider the reproach of Christ to be greater than the treasures of Egypt? How is that possible? Well, because I believe what we talked about in John 1, 1, that the word was God and the word is God, and it put on flesh and it dwelt among us. Because Jesus was there. He understood that the treasure of Christ himself was better than anything this world had to offer. And it all happened by faith. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. All by faith. They and many others consider the treasure of Christ worth more than anything else the world has to offer. You look at lives of people all around the world. You look at people that are, are missionaries over in China, and, and they're living in the worst conditions possible, but they know that the gospel has to go out. They know that. You know what? I want my life to count. I want my life to count. I don't want to waste this amazing gift I've been given. I don't want to waste breath. I don't want to waste time. See, I've already been given 13,854 days, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping for many more. But there's no guarantee on that. But when they do come, I don't want to just use them for my pleasure and my glory. I want to use them for his pleasure and his glory. I want to be able to do that. And if I ever get to a point where I'm not that way, fire me. 
fire me. Find somebody who is, because there's no reason for me to be leading a church that is just here to exist. We are here to reach this community. We are here to make a difference. And this year, I want to suggest you to do something more than just making a New Year's resolution. I want you to change one letter in that word. And instead of a New Year's resolution, I want you to make a New Year's revolution. Because a revolution is actually defined as a forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. I think we need a new system of thinking. The American Christian church has been in the wrong system of thinking for way too long. We need a new system. And you know what happens in a revolution? Pain. You know what happens in a revolution? Loss. And those things are going to happen in our lives as we start to have this revolutionary thinking of what God really wants. But you know what else it's going to do? It's going to create a whole new you. Our country stands here because of a revolution. And it created a whole new being. And what about us? What if for 2014, we actually look at the words of the Bible and not just read them for what they are, but actually apply them for what they are? How much will our lives change to let Christ be there and then everything else? My question is, if we're going to do it, are you ready for it?